Well, if, you're, if this is the first time you've been, um, then we are continuing our series this morning in Cries from the Cross. And uh, this is the third in the series, and we're looking at uh, that verse, Why Have You Forsaken Me? Um, this on, thank you. Um, good, I don't know if you remember Donald Rumsfeld. Um, from 2002 um, this is what, what, what he famously said um, and you may recall it there are known knowns these are things we know that we know we also know that there are known unknowns that is to say there are things that we know we don't know but there are also Unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. And it, if one looks throughout the history of our country and other free countries, it is the latter category that tend to be the difficult ones. Well, it's true to say that the older I get, the more I know that I don't know. How many times have we been at our wit's end and cried out, why God? Why? We might look at the invasion of Ukraine and say, why? Look at the injustice, the senseless deaths, the indiscriminate shelling, the bombing, the wrecking of a nation, of livelihoods, of, of homes and families. And we might say, why God? Why? It might be the death of a loved one as we try and make sense of it. But there is no rationale that we can think of. The timing is wrong. It seems so senseless. We are numb with grief and our eyes are sore with crying. And we cry out, why God? Why? The consultant is looking at you as he delivers the news. It's worse than you expected. And your mind is racing. You see his lips moving, but your ears are blocked to, to the rest of what he says. You feel like retching. And your heart and your head are screaming at you. And this gut-wrenching cry comes from deep down inside your soul. Why, God? Why? Every single one of us will come across some time or other. There may be many times in our lives when we say those words. We all face Trials and troubles of many kinds. Maybe you're in that position right now. And even to come here this morning or to tune in online was a major effort. Well, then you're in good company. Because even Jesus cried out those very words as he hung there on the cross. Why, God, why have you left me? Even Jesus? Yes, even Jesus cried out those words as he hung suffering 
on that wretched cross. And down throughout history, those words have been thrown into God's face. God, can't you see the mess that I'm in? Why don't you do something? Why do you allow suffering, God? Maybe it was the early Christians suffering severe persecution under Nero, kneeling, waiting for the lions to pounce in the arena. Doubtless it was voiced many, many times throughout the two world wars. And as Jesus cried this prayer from the cross, he was actually quoting the first verse of Psalm 22. If you've got your Bibles, you might just want to turn to Psalm 22. Have that open on your laps. Some think that Jesus was reciting this psalm to himself whilst on the cross. And when you look at Psalm 22, you will find that amazingly, though it was penned by King David some thousand years previous, it was written in the first person singular by someone apparently hanging on a cross hundreds of years before the Romans ever invented crucifixion. And the accuracy of the prophecy in these verses is clearly described in the Gospels of Luke and John. You will recognize the detail here as referring to Jesus. And it is staggeringly accurate as described in Matthew 27, 31 to 46. We read, he was scorned by everyone and despised by the people. He was mocked and insulted. They hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. He trusts the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Verse 14, all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. You can imagine the, the, the person on the cross, his saliva has disappeared and his strength is dried up and his tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth. They pierced my hands and feet. A band of evil people have encircled me. I can count all my bones. The people stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. What are the odds that anyone else could fulfill the prophecy of this sound? The recorded events of Jesus' death show that he fulfilled this Old Testament prophecy in every way. So what is the psalmist saying in verses 1 and 2? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I'm not silent. You see, that's the reality of the situation. I am crying out to you, God. But you seem a long, long way away. He goes on to say in verses 3 to 5, Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you 
and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Even though Israel praises God and the evidence of God's help in the past is well known, right now the psalmist feels totally deserted. In fact, in his solitude, he feels subhuman. Like a worm, verse 6, he feels humiliated, reviled, and scorned. He's lost his self-esteem, his confidence, and his strength. The temporary nature of life is poignant. We can identify with that, can't we? It might be an irretrievable breakdown in a relationship. Might be financial problems where you can't see a way out. Might be trouble with a job or career. Might be family meltdowns that seem unresolvable. Or a bereavement that has knocked the bottom out of your world. It feels as though your whole world has collapsed. Maybe you feel a loss of purpose, of self-esteem, of self-worth. God's silence seems baffling and confusing. The situation is a real test of faith. But this isn't a heart cry to a God that he doesn't know. There is familiarity in in that cry in verse 1. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is an intimacy. If you come to church regularly, then you will have heard how God has helped other people during difficult times. You may have heard their testimony of deliverance or of prayers answered in remarkable ways. But in that moment of loss, you feel vulnerable, subhuman even. Your defenses are down and you feel lost and alone. Yes, in your head you know that God exists. When you look at the wonders of nature and the vastness of the galaxies, you realize that these things don't just come around by chance. There is order and purposeful design that shouts to the existence of a great designer. There is fantastic beauty in color and shape and sound and sense that would not be necessary if evolution was simply based on the survival of the fittest. God has created mankind with a capacity to worship him. But instead of the one true God, we are guilty of turning our worship to the things he has made, rather than to the creator himself. We make our own gods out of our achievements, our sport, our possessions even. And throughout time, man has sought fulfillment in some sort of spirituality but only a relationship with God provides fulfillment in the present and a peace for the past and assurance for the future he is enthroned Psalm 22 verse 3 
and God is the one that Israel praises. But God's kingship is not dependent upon Israel's praise. God remains sovereign whether or not he is recognized as being in control. Israel's praise is acknowledgement of his rule. What does it mean that God is king? It means that he has sovereign power. He is the supreme ruler and he is not answerable to any other power or authority. God has a kingdom over which he reigns and exerts authority. He is the arbiter of justice. He is the dispenser of mercy. He establishes the law and the conduct and the values. He is a good king who works for and on behalf of his subjects. We often expect God to act in a certain way. We inadvertently, perhaps, tell God that if he does it this way or that way, then he would achieve great results. And we may become disappointed or disillusioned even when God doesn't perform exactly as we expect or as we prayed. We pray for healing and mercifully God answers our prayer and a miracle takes place. We pray again in a similar vein for another situation and there is no miracle and maybe the loved one is taken from us. We can't box God. If we could, then he wouldn't be God Almighty. He does not work to some prescribed formula. He is infinite in his thoughts and his ways are beyond our solving. We trust him to do the right thing. And like Abraham, we say, will not the judge of all the earth do right? In his head, the psalmist knows that God is holy. You are enthroned as the Holy One, he says, verse 3. And God's holiness was well known throughout Israel's history. The laws that God gave to Moses, the institution of animal sacrifices, and the observance of certain rituals to enter into God's presence were given to show that God is holy, that he cannot tolerate sin in his presence. What would it be like if God was not holy? To have all that power, but to be corruptible. There would be little difference then between God and the dictators that we see today and that we've seen throughout history. What if God could be bribed? Or if he just changed our fate at will? God's holiness means that he remains untainted by sin or wrongdoing. It means that he is absolutely perfect and pure in his thinking and in his actions. 
He cannot do wrong. Because it is not in his nature. It is not in his DNA if God has DNA. Jesus' life on earth was sinless. God says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy. Because I am holy. A holy God cannot tolerate sin and wrongdoing. Because to have sin in his presence would taint his holiness. So here is the dilemma. How does a holy God receive sinful people? How can we, fallen people, ever get to enter into God's kingdom? Well, because God knows all things, God knew that mankind would sin. And even before he created the world, God conceived a rescue plan whereby fallen mankind could be made right to have a relationship with a holy God. Jesus' death on the cross is the answer. Bizarre as it may seem, God's justice demanded a penalty to be paid. The cross is the juxtaposition of God's holiness and his kingship. God wanted a relationship with people, but people were polluted by sin. How could God have a kingdom populated by sinful people? Only by making them clean. By wiping the slate clean of all their wrongdoing. And at the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. The remarkable cry of Jesus as he hung dying on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was not a cry by mere bodily pain. It was a cry that expressed the real pressure on his soul of the enormous burden of a world's sin. The words show how truly and literally he was our substitute. He was made sin and a curse for us. He endured God's righteous anger against a world's sin in his own person. At that awful moment, he was bearing the penalty for you and for me and for a world that had rejected God. The prophet Isaiah said, still it's what God has in mind all along to crush him with pain. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin so that he sees life come from it. Life, life and more life. Out of that terrible travail of soul, he'll see that it's worth it and be glad he did it. That burden must have been so heavy that for a time he was forsaken by his father God. Listen, can you hear that cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Is there any stronger proof of the sinfulness of sin or of the vicarious nature of Jesus' sufferings? The cross is God's answer to anyone who says that God can understand that he doesn't know what pain and suffering is like. Jesus knew homelessness. He knew what it was like to live in a country that was occupied by a brutal regime. He knew what it was to be misunderstood. He knew what it was to be betrayed and deserted by those he loved. There had to be a cross. Someone had to pay the price. But he had to be perfect in every way to be the sacrifice. So God came in person, in Jesus, the perfect sacrifice for sin. Is there any stronger proof that God loves us? What father would deliberately let his only son die in such a manner? Yet God did that for you and for me because he loves us so very much. Pastor Rick Warren tells the story of Billy Graham who was driving through a small town in the States when a siren-blasting police car pulled him over. And the officer got out and he informed Billy Graham that he had been driving at 40 miles per hour in a 30 mile per hour speed zone. And Billy quickly apologized. He said, yes, I'm guilty. He said, how much is the fine? And the policeman told him that the fine was $10, but that he would have to appear in court. And in this particular small town in the States, the local court convened in the barber shop. And the judge was both justice of the peace and the barber. And when Billy walked in, the judge was just finishing giving a haircut. And after he finished the haircut, he assumed his judicial role and he called the court to order. Guilty or not guilty, he asked Billy. Guilty, said Billy. That will be $10. A dollar for every mile over the limit, said the judge. Before he realized that the man standing before him was none other than the well-known evangelist, Billy Graham. You have violated the law and the penalty must be paid, said the judge. Billy reached for his wallet, but the judge protested, the fine must be paid, but I'm going to pay it for you. And in that moment, the judge took $10 from his own pocket and he attached it to the ticket. And then he took Billy, who he had listened to on the radio for many, many years. He took him out for a steak dinner. And years later, as Billy Graham reminisced about the incident, Billy said, that's how our Heavenly Father treats repentant sinners. God's holiness demands that the penalty for sin must be paid. And in love and mercy, God himself, in Jesus, paid the penalty 
allowing the repentant sinner to go free. And then he lavishes his love upon us with a lot more than a steak lunch. The cross is the center point of history. The Old Testament prophets look forward to it. And we as the global church triumphant look back to it. The cross forever stands as a reminder that God loves us. That Jesus has been through death for us. That he identifies with us in our pain. But there is a light through the tunnel. And it will be alright in the end. You see as you read through Psalm 22, we find that it is not a psalm of abandonment. But rather ultimately it's a psalm of hope. The suffering of Jesus is clearly foretold, but we know that it ends in victory. Jesus, at the very lowest point of his life, crucified and forsaken by God, trusted in God to deliver him. And the apparent defeat of the cross turned out to be the greatest victory of all time. If you're at a low point, Here this morning, remember that suffering does not have the last word. In Jesus, the resurrection and the victory have the last word. And the prayer then comes to a climax as the suffering salvist proclaims, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord... Praise him, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. We were thinking at the start about the unknown unknowns. We cannot know how God separated himself at the cross. Our Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were all involved in the greatest rescue mission of all time at the cross. I'm sure that Jesus had the whole of Psalm 22 in mind there when he cried those words. He knew that the suffering would be worth it in the end. The Father has heard his cry and father and son are at work together to bring about our redemption the rescue of humanity or to use the words of Paul God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Jesus we might become right with God. The cross assures us that at the moments of our greatest suffering, when we need God the most, we can trust him to be present. No matter how bad it feels or how great our pain, God will not hide his face. From his children. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And then the psalmist ramps up the praise. The whole earth, he says, will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. People from every nation will bow before him, for the Lord is king. He rules all the nations. The sign that they nailed above Jesus on the cross announced this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And despite their ignorance, they got it partly right, didn't they? This is Jesus, not only king of the Jews, but of the whole cosmos. The writer Francis Ridley Havergal wrote a beautiful hymn. And one verse says, He who came to save us, he who bled and died, now is crowned with glory at the Father's side, never more to suffer, never more to die. Jesus, King of glory, is gone up on high. All his work is ended. Joyfully we sing, Jesus has ascended. Glory to our King. The psalm ends in triumph. All generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the Lord Jesus who went to the cross. And there he took upon himself all our pain, all our punishment, all our wrongdoing, all our sin. He took it upon himself. He bore our sin. What a saviour. We thank you that in his humility he left behind all heaven's glory. The majesty that was rightfully his, he left it all behind. He came into our world. He became like us in our humanity. He understands what temptation and pain and suffering and separation and homelessness and all these things he knew he identified with us. And then he went to Calvary's cross. He suffered humiliation and torture and pain, such pain that we can never know. And ultimately he suffered to be forsaken by you, Father God. And yet he willingly endured it all because he loved us. What love. We adore him. We fall at his knees. We acknowledge him to be king of our lives, king of kings and lord of lords. We thank you that he is enthroned this morning and we worship him. We gladly join with millions and millions who have gone before and the angels and the archangels, one big throng worshipping Jesus, the lamb who was slain. We thank you that he was the centre of earth and now he's the centre of heaven and the centre of our praise. We give him all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.